my name is Adrian. Good to see you all. If we haven't yet met, love to connect with you after the service. Up here on stage with me are Tim Stratton and Sarah Staples. And uh, we're doing something a little bit different today. We've been in this series, I Believe in God, But, in which we've looked at uh, five, and then next week, six of the most common objections to Christianity. Today's going to be a little bit different than anything we've done before. Indeed, I've never done this in my ministry before. And so you guys are the beta, okay? It's quite possible this will be a flame out. And if it is, we won't do it again. But you guys get to be the beta test today as we do a question and answer time up on stage based on the common questions, though, that we got from you over the past several weeks related to this series. I believe in God, but I'm struggling with any number of different questions. And we got 30, 35 questions over the past weeks. Uh, we won't be able to answer them all today. Indeed, first service, we weren't able to get through the questions that we anticipated getting through. But we're going to do our best to get through as many as we possibly can. And... Um, but part of what I hope you get out of this is that well-meaning Christians can come and reason together. Uh, the Bible even says that. The book of Isaiah chapter 1 says, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. And we should be able to talk about big and difficult issues and not throw bombs at each other. We should be able to talk about big and difficult issues and acknowledge that sometimes we'll even disagree with one another and some questions require nuanced answers. And there's some things that perhaps you'll hear today that you disagree with. That's okay. There are a couple things, though, that, that Tim might say that I might disagree with. And he has every right to be wrong. <laughs> but we get to dialogue together, and that's under the canopy of mere Christianity. One of the things, though, that we, um, one of the questions that we get is, what other resources do you have? And there's a list of resources in the back of your outline. The outline's blank, and you can take notes today on it. But here's a handful of resources that, that we would recommend. The first one was written in 1943 by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. And it's like it was written yesterday. It is every bit as relevant today as it's ever been. And it's a basic introduction to what Christianity is and why we would believe it is actually true. Great resource. One that was written about eight or nine years ago that's a little bit more contemporary, deals with some of the contemporary cultural issues, is the reason for God by Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City, and he's got his finger on the pulse of the cultural and intellectual issues for the day, and uh, another great resource. Uh, a third resource that I would recommend is called The God Conversation. And if you've tried to read Keller or Lewis before and you haven't enjoyed them, you felt like it was a little bit difficult to um, understand some of the things they are writing, I might encourage you to pick up this book, The God Conversation. And the subtitle of this is perfect. It's using stories and illustrations to explain your faith. Have you ever been in that place that you say, I know what I believe, but I have a really hard time explaining it? Anyone else? Come on, raise your hand. We've all been there. And so this will help you with that because it gives stories and illustrations, which is the language of our day, to help explain our faith related to these difficult questions that come to us. 160 pages, really a pretty easy read, but a really helpful one related to the questions that we've been engaging Tim's got a really valuable website if you haven't been there before, freethinkingministries.com. I'd invite you to go there to look at any number of different blogs and articles, mostly by Tim, but a number of other writers also who have written on that site. And it's a, it's a fantastic uh, website related to a number of the questions that we've been engaging these, these past weeks. Then in the midst of all that, one final resource. It's important not to take yourself too seriously, so I encourage you to also have a copy of Calvin and Hobbes that you pick up from time to time. And read quite often so you don't take yourself too seriously. Okay, enough said there. And uh, we will hand it over to Sarah as Sarah is 
taking the unenviable task of moderating between me and Tim today a number of different questions. None of us here on stage, let, let me, last comment, we are not experts, okay? We're fellow travelers who have committed a lot of time to study. We really, really believe in this stuff, so we've committed a lot of time to study, but there are no experts on stage here, I promise you that. What we are committed to is humbly traveling with you more and more toward Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. And as Adrian said, we have a number of questions we want to get to, and so we're just going to jump right in so that we can um, get to as many of these as possible. So the first uh, question someone wrote in is, a, I love this question, this is great. I'm convinced that the Bible is a set of reliable documents, but not sure how I know that it is the inspired Word of God. It seems to me that it could be clearer, which could very well be if the human authors, quote, got it wrong. So, Adrian, you've mentioned specifically that we can know it's inspired based on some biblical passages noted in this question with 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. So how would you respond to this individual's concern? That's a great question. And I think uh, you go back to that first premise that we talked about five weeks ago, that there are lots of good reasons to believe that the Bible is reliable. We addressed five great reasons. It's very early. Um, there's great manuscript evidence for the Bible, many others. You can go back and listen to that whole message. I won't repeat it right now. But that helped us establish that according to historical standards, the Bible is actually the most reliable book in the ancient world. It's not even close. And if that's true, then you go to the second premise. Well, how do we believe though, that it's inspired? How do we believe it's actually the Word of God? Well, the biblical authors themselves say, it's, say that it's inspired. Jesus says his words are the inspired words of God. Uh, Peter does. Paul does. John does. Moses does. They each say the Bible, the words that they are saying, the words they are writing, are inspired by God. So if it, number one, is reliable, and then number two, these authors themselves say that they are inspired, then it must be, it, the logical conclusion then would be, that they are um, that those words, that their words are inspired, are reliable, okay? Let, let me say that again. If it's reliable, if they're saying they're inspired, then those words that it's inspired are reliable as well, okay? That's the conclusion that logically follows from those two premises. And uh, I, I'd say, finally, that the Bible has the power to transform lives in a way that no other book I've ever seen uh, has ever done. It transformed my life, and I know it has for many of yours. Just to quickly add on top of that, next week, you don't want to miss it, Adrian's going to be giving some historical reasons to think that the, the resurrection is true, right? Based on the historical method, we can demonstrate the resurrection actually happened. Now, if God raised Jesus from the dead, then that seems to be a divine stamp of approval on everything that Jesus said, taught, and exemplified. And guess what Jesus did? He taught out of the Old Testament, and he picked, he handpicked those to continue writing the New Testament. So we have a divine stamp of approval on the entire Bible from cover to cover if the resurrection is true. Paul says if Christ has not been raised, our faith is meaningless and we ought to be pitied. Well, guess what? Without even uh, assuming that this is the inspired word of God, just through using the historical method, we can demonstrate that we have good reason to think God raised Jesus from the dead. Therefore, we can trust that book. Absolutely. Like Tim said, next week, Adrian will be talking a little bit more on that as well. Well, along those same lines, Adrian, um, another great question that came in. If we believe the Bible is inspired, Word of God, 
does this mean that we have to believe that all the people who practice Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism are wrong? Can you speak to that a little bit? I know, great question. Who wrote that question? <laughs> Man, I'm going to find you. <laughs> uh, that's a tough question, isn't it? I, I don't think that believing that the Bible is the inspired Word of God necessitates believing that everything from every other religion is 100% wrong all the time. I, I don't believe that. Uh, I think what it would necessitate is, as C.S. Lewis notes in Mere Christianity, that uh, the Bible is right 100% of the time, and to the extent that another religion would contradict the Bible, to that extent, that other religion is wrong. Okay, so we affirm the Bible in full, we affirm what Jesus said in full, and there might be some points of agreement in other religions of the world, but that's because God has stamped his image on all people everywhere, so there can be some wisdom there. But I would just pause there and say that oftentimes, well, what's behind that question is this modern desire that all of the religions would say the same thing, and they don't. I haven't shared my testimony from this stage. I have during the interview process that I did uh, some time ago before I came here uh, a little less than two years ago. I shared my testimony there, but I came out of the different religions of the world and, and have studied the different religions of the world in a pretty intense manner before embracing Christ. And they simply say very different things about really important questions. They're contradictory to one another about the nature of salvation, about where we've come from, about where we're going after we die, about how we would get there, about the nature of humanity, about even what is morality. There's vast differences between the world religions on these critical questions. And so you're left asking the question, which one best stands up to the evidence, and how would I base my life on it? Uh, just a couple really quick examples. Um, Hinduism and Christianity have vastly different views of the value of people. We believe here at Carnegie Free, every person matters. That's our vision statement. That comes out of the Bible based on the image and likeness of God that every person is equally valuable. But in Hinduism, you have this vast caste system that comes out of the religion because some people matter a whole lot more than other people. That's just a fact. Or... You look at Buddhism versus Islam versus Christianity and the question of God. Well, Buddhism is basically non-theistic. It says the question of God is irrelevant. We're not sure if there is a God. And you certainly could have a relationship with him. That's quite different than Christianity, I would say. That's quite different from Islam that say there's one God. Well, now, of course, Islam and Christianity would agree that there is only one God, but they disagree on the nature of God in significant ways. Um, Islam says that Jesus never died on a cross. He never rose from the grave. He might have been a prophet, but he was not nearly the prophet that Muhammad was. Very different views of the nature of God. You must come to the point where you say, will I trust Jesus as he is? And at least as I've studied it, I would have to agree with Peter that I've looked at the different religions of the world and I'd have to agree with him in John chapter 6. Where else would I go? There's not a better option out there and it's not even close. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, Tim, you've had an opportunity to share a couple of messages in this series as well, and uh, that, as you can imagine, prompted some questions. 
And uh, one question that came out of this, uh, you painted kind of a rosy picture between science and Christianity. And uh, this person wrote, well, what about the science of evolution? We see evolution in the development of some plants and animals, so why wouldn't we know that humans didn't evolve also? I knew this question was going to be raised after I gave my science and God uh, talk. <laughs> um, you know, this question is raised all the time when I'm on the college campus or even dealing with high school students. I've seen so many students from the church start to lose their faith. Maybe they go into pre-med, and so they major in maybe biology or something like that, and they, they start uh, saying, well, they at least start thinking that evolution might be true, and, well, if evolution's true, does that mean I have to stop being a Christian? And I've, I've had this conversation countless times. So here's the thing. The first thing to point out is that virtually no one rejects the idea of evolution in some form or fashion. Uh, the word evolution simply means change over time. And no one doubts that species change at least a little bit over time. So that's not really controversial. The, the big question, and the one that's caused all the fuss, is in regards to evolution or the change over time from a single-celled common ancestor to all life on Earth today, including humans. So... Uh, so that's what we mean by evolution. There's two different ways of looking at that. But let's bracket that for a moment. Mere Christianity, as C.S. Lewis uh, called it, or, or basic Christianity, right? It comes down to the truth value of one simple statement. Th that is, if this one statement is true, then Christianity is true. And if this one statement is false, then this whole thing is false. God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. True or false? Right? <laughs> now, that requires the existence of God and a historical resurrection of Jesus. Well, guess what? We have evidence for both God. I gave you two arguments for God's existence in my two sermons here in the last few weeks. We have evidence for the existence of God, and there's much more than that. And we've also got historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Adrian's going to get into that next week. So we have fantastic reason to put our faith into that proposition. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's mere Christianity. So, uh, with that said, let's now look at two propositions. God raised Jesus from the dead, on this hand. Evolution is true, on this hand. Are those mutually exclusive? That is to say, if evolution is true over here on this hand, does that do anything to negate the existence of God or the historical resurrection? No. <laughs> There's nothing that, if evolution is true, it does not negate mere Christianity, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Evolution, if true, is irrelevant to the truth of Christianity. As I've told my son, it's an irrelevant elephant. So I can remember that. It's an irrelevant elephant. It doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't do anything to discount the truth of God raising Jesus from the dead. So, and, and I got to tell you, that, that's one reason why the evolution professor at UNK is a Christian. Now, it's important to note what's on trial here is not Christianity when discussing evolution. What's on trial is not God raising Jesus from the dead. What's on trial is one's interpretation of a specific part of the Bible, namely the creation account in Genesis, okay? 
That's what's on trial. Now, i got to tell you, that's, that's been debated since the early church. You know, by St. Augustine, for example, how do we interpret Genesis? Are there other possibly correct interpretations of this creation account? Augustine was debating that 1,500 years before Darwin was even born. So this isn't a new debate to the church. Um, so my point is one can believe in evolution and still be a Christian. I'm not saying I affirm evolution. I know Adrian does not. Okay, But I am going to tell you that there are Christians behind the doors of the church that do believe in evolution. Some of them attend this church. right? And they also believe this is the inspired word of God. Okay, now you might be thinking, well, what do they do with Adam and Eve? Well, most Christians uh, don't believe in evolution because of that, but, but what if I told you there were models out there that demonstrated that a historical Adam and Eve are compatible with the idea and the theory of evolution? What if I told you that? <laughs> uh, I'm not saying that that model's true. But what I like to do is when somebody, when I'm talking to somebody who really sincerely believes evolution is true, I give them a model. If I can't change, you know, if, if their mind isn't going to change on that, I give them a model and say, well, look, here's a model that demonstrates that what you think is true is also perfectly compatible with Christianity and Adam and Eve. Now, can we discuss the cross? Can we talk about Jesus and what he did for you on that cross? I take it off the table and discuss the gospel. So I hope that helps a little bit. I'm sure that raises more questions. Please talk to me afterwards. You always raise more questions in my mind, Tim. (laughs) I love it. Oh, goodness. Well, we're going to shift gears just a little bit here. And, you know, one question that I get a lot um, working with women is uh, about what happens to unborn children. And so we had somebody actually write in about this. What about those who've never heard of Christ, such as the unborn child, or those with mental disabilities, or perhaps those who died before they had a chance to hear the gospel? And that's, I think, a very common question we hear um, as Christians. So, Adrian, can you speak to that a little bit for us? Yeah, another softball. Thank you. I know. I'm doing my job. These are all softballs. (laughs) You know, uh, part of theology is this idea of general revelation, that God has revealed himself generally to all people at all times, in a number of different ways. And I think the ways that he has revealed himself to all people at all times, whether they have a Bible or not, whether anyone's ever told them about Jesus or not, is three different ways. One is uh, a longing for God. And that's, these are all rooted in the scriptures. So Ecclesiastes 2 speaks to the longing that all people always have for God. There's a longing for spirituality of some kind. Uh, Romans 1 speaks about how God has testified to his existence through nature, through creation. Romans 2 speaks about how God has testified to himself through the gift of conscience, that none of us are without witness of God because he has given us a conscience And we would recognize in our conscience, I've done something wrong. Now, who do I repent to? What do I do with that? And uh, I think you put these together and you recognize that that God has revealed something of himself, at least, to all people everywhere. I don't know that we can answer Sarah's question with definitive uh, explanation like this, like kind of hands tight. I think there's some questions that you answer that are more like this, a little bit open-handed. 
And the way I would answer this question is appealing to these passages and to the merciful and holy and good and loving character of God and have to say that I believe that God will give everyone an opportunity to know Christ. Now, how he does that, I'm not sure. I've heard many stories from missionaries that we've supported over the years of God bringing visions and dreams to people such that they confessed of this man in white, this Jesus, before they ever even heard the name of Jesus. And then sometime later, God brought a missionary to them. Uh, God is not desiring that anyone would perish, but all to come to eternal life. And so my hope is that God would provide a way for all of those people to come to know him. And I think, at the very least, what would be expected is the response to the revelation that he had already given. The response of revelation of creation, conscience, and this longing. Now, again, we can't say any of that for sure, but even Abraham was dealing with this back in Genesis 19. And he appeals to God's good character. Well, when he asked God, Are you, would you really destroy this city of Sodom if 50 righteous people lived in it? And in Genesis 19, uh, he goes to this debate with God. And, and, and God says, no, I wouldn't do that. And he keeps pushing God and putting him the test. And he says, what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? Would you destroy the city if 10 righteous people lived in it? And God said, no, I would not destroy the city if even 10 righteous people lived in it. And the point is that God in his kindness and his righteousness longs for that city that engaged in such wickedness to come to him. This is the character of God. Um, so I'm... I'm hopeful. I think there's at least a possibility that God perhaps would give people an opportunity to respond to them in some way through visions or through dreams or through missionaries before they die or perhaps even after they die, though there would be an opportunity. I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us definitively, but there's hope there based on the character of God and the testimony that I just laid out from the gift of general revelation that is going off to all people. Last word, in no way could this ever minimize the evangelistic zeal that we hold because we know that knowing Christ for eternity but also for today is a great gift. Isn't that so? God invites us to know him today, not just for eternity, and the kingdom of God is at hand right now. Amen, and I think we have... Uh, some good reason to think that Adrian's probably right. On, I mean, you guys remember that story I told a couple weeks ago with that guy from China that I sat next to on the airplane? You guys remember that? I mean, here's a guy who was raised in China, an atheistic China. Everybody from his parents to his professors constantly told him, from a little boy, that there is no God. God does not exist, but there's some crazy people in the world, like in America, who believe in fairy tales and God, all right? That's what he constantly was bombarded with, and guess what? He told me, I never believed him once. And I said, well, why not? He goes, because of how God revealed himself to me through his creation, through natural revelation. I never believed my parents when they told me that God didn't exist. I never believed my professors. And I was like, wow, that's Romans 1.20 in action. But here's how God is so good. God knew that if this young man would hear the gospel, that he would respond appropriately to the gospel and accept him. And so God did what he had to to make sure that this young man would be in a situation where he heard the gospel. And he got him a full-ride scholarship to the University of Oregon. And as soon as he landed there and got on campus, a campus ministry group came and shared the gospel with him. And he was like, I knew that was true. I just didn't know the details. And he became a Christian right after that. So God knows who will respond appropriately if they hear. He's omniscient after all. And he, provide, he gets people in the circumstances uh, to which they will hear the truth 
so that they can respond to it. We can trust God. Amen. I love that story. I remember that story. Well, Tim, we also had a couple of questions regarding free will, and I know this is one that we could probably take up the rest of our time with, so we're going to gonna ask you to, you know, be concise. Um, did I just say that out loud? I did just say that out loud. I'm glad you did. Okay. Uh, so, Tim, I got to recover. Okay. Tim, can we just will ourselves to do good all the time, and therefore, would we even need Christ to be able to get to heaven if we were able to will ourselves yeah. not to sin? Right. Okay, good question. Uh, even though we have free will, we still need Jesus big time for three reasons. Number one, we are created by God in the image of God, right? So if it were not for God slash Jesus, you would not even exist, okay? And moreover, you have to be created in his image so that you're not just a mere physical object uh, causally determined by the laws of physics and chemistry. You know, you're more than just a falling domino, by the way. You're created in the image of God with free will so that you can freely think. If there, were no, uh, if there was no such thing as free will, then there'd be no such thing as free thinking. And if there was no free thinking, then there would be no free choosing. <laughs> and there'd be no such thing as love, I would argue, too. So you're created by God and, and in the image of God. So if it were not for Jesus, you would not even exist and be able to make choices. Uh, number two, uh, even though we, we still have, even though we have free will, we still need Jesus because of natural and special revelation. Uh, you have the ability to make a free choice, but if it were not for the revelation, we've been talking about natural revelation and special revelation. If it weren't for what God was doing, you wouldn't even know that you had a choice to make. So we need Jesus. It's because of how God and Jesus impact and enter into this world and, and let us know that we have a choice to make that even though we have free will, we can still, uh, I mean, we still need Jesus. And finally, uh, the third point I, I would like to make is that it's through grace alone, through faith alone. Paul is clear in Ephesians 2.8 that, I mean, even if we always chose the good, which nobody has ever done besides Jesus, but even if we did that, that doesn't get us to heaven any more than me flapping my arms like a bird would make me fly, <laughs> right? It's still by grace alone. God chooses to save those who put their trust and, and love in him. So it's by, he doesn't have to. He's not obligated to us by any means. It's through his grace. So even though we have free will, we still need Jesus. Think about Peter very quickly. When, when Peter walked on water, uh, he walked on water for a little bit. And, and he did not have the ability to do that on his own. But God gave him the ability to do that if he had faith in him. And then he started to sink, and he's like, you know, basically, why, why were you doubting? You know, why'd you lose your faith there? You know, why, why didn't you trust me? And so, you see, God, in the same way that he allowed Peter to walk on water if he had faith, he allows us to go to heaven if we have faith. We can't do it on our own. We need Jesus. So even if we have free will, we still need Jesus. Amen. Thanks Amen. For, thanks for All clearing right. that up Thank for you. us, by the way. You're welcome. Thanks. All right. All right. <laughs> Well, we're going to get to uh, what I think is kind of a hot-button question here, and I'm going to throw this one over to Adrian because it's regarding our money. Mm. And, um, you know, this person writes in, I think, a great question. I believe in God, but why is he so interested in my money? Why can't I have what I work so hard for? Hmm. Yeah, since when has money been a hot-button question? Uh, God doesn't care about your money. He cares about your heart. I mean, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the money. 
cares about your heart. cares about my heart. And God in his wisdom knows that the greatest potential idol is money. Jesus actually deifies money, calling it a rival to God. And so it's out of his generosity that he invites us to be a part of his great kingdom work, of expanding his kingdom, of working toward the salvation of people that we know and love, of building the church, of feeding the poor, these great, great purposes that God would give to us, that he invites us into this grand adventure and enables us, allows us to utilize some of what he has given. I would add that I've never met a generous person, a really generous person who is not also happy. Conversely, I'm not sure if I've ever met a stingy person who is happy. I'm not sure if I've ever met a stingy person who's not frustrated and struggling with comparison and on and on. It's, it's a gift of God. And generosity is not a have to. It is truly a get to. And I got to tell you, just as a pastor, as I, as I meet with people, I, I sometimes am saddened a little bit that uh, as, as I read, I think we have a very, very generous church. But I'm saddened as I read statistics that like only 5 or 6% of evangelicals tithe. And, uh, you know, the average evangelical today is giving 2 or 3%. And it's like, okay, what, what are we exchanging that for? We're missing out on the building of God's church for more stuff that just tethers us more to this world. And uh, I, I just think God would give us far more joy if we would follow him Amen. into the path of generosity. You know, I mentioned in first service that I've seen this in, at work in my, my family. I come from a very generous family. My parents are some of the most generous people I know. They also are some of the most joy-filled yeah. people I know. So yeah. I, I would agree with that, absolutely. Well, Tim, um, are there any, can you uh, give us real quick just a couple of debates that perhaps you would recommend if people are interested in finding a little bit more on some of the debates between Christianity and atheism? Um, you know, maybe a couple of, of uh, places they can look. Yeah, the first guy I'd start with uh, is one of my professors, William Lane Craig. Uh, Sam Harris, who is one of the most influential atheists in the world today, he once referred to Dr. Craig as the one Christian apologist who strikes the fear of God into the hearts of all atheists. <laughs> now, if that's how atheists feel about William Lane Craig, don't you think the church should be aware of his work. <laughs> uh, I would really encourage you to study his work. Uh, his website's reasonablefaith.org. But watch a couple of his, of his debates to get you started. One with Christopher Hitchens, and the other was against Alex Rosenberg, a professor at Duke University. Those are, he's got tons of debates, but those are the two I'd start with. The other guy I'd recommend is Mike Lacona. I also had him as a professor, and he spoke here a couple years ago. Mike Lacona is the guy that defends the historicity, just by using the historical method, defends the historicity of the resurrection without even touching the Gospels. And then he goes on and demonstrates why the Gospels are reliable too. So let's see, the debate, uh, he debated Bart Ehrman two or three times. And so I'd, I'd encourage you to watch those. Awesome. Thank you. you Good resources. All right. Well, Adrian, uh, we have another one for you, here for you. I know. Uh, isn't belief in God just an emotional crutch that helps people cope during difficult times? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, God cares about us emotionally. 
He cares about us relationally. He cares about us intellectually. The premise of this whole series is that we have good intellectual reasons to believe what we believe in Christianity. I think, um, you know, one of the, again, that's the premise, and I, I hope we've provided some good reasons. You may not be convinced. Again, we have lots of people come in here every Sunday who don't believe, and that's great. We're glad you're here. You may not be convinced, but I hope you've at least heard some good reasons to believe that there are uh, strong responses to common questions. I think one of the, the big pickles that many Christians get into is uh, driving the train in the wrong way with respect to how they think about their faith. And many Christians, you know, if you think of a three-part train, I'm not the best drawer, as you see. Uh, But imagine, imagine, using your imagination here, this is a train. Many Christians, they put their feelings up front in the train. Right here, they put feelings right there. You don't want to do that. You do not want to do that. That's to turn our faith into an emotional crutch, and then when you don't feel close to God, you might abandon Him. Don't do that. What, what Tim and I would like to suggest is you put the facts of Christianity in the front of the train. And then the feelings might come and go. And then you make a reasonable step of faith called trust, a reasonable step of faith in light of the evidence. Because there's good reason to believe. This is Hebrews 11.1. 1. The best definition that we have in the Bible of faith is a step of faith on the basis of the evidence. It's believing in things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. Those are certainty-type words. So faith is not a blind leap in spite of evidence. Far from it. It's believing we have good reasons. And then we say, yeah, I'll, I'll trust my life to Jesus based on these good reasons. And then the feelings will follow. And the feelings will come and go, as we all know. But the last thing we want to believe is that this is an emotional crutch. No, far be it. What we're saying here is this is factual. This is based in history. This is the best explanation of the evidence. And so we have a a wise, informed step of faith on the basis of that, and the feelings will follow. Last comment. Because it's true, it will be emotionally comforting. Not the other way around. Okay? Anything that is true is ultimately emotionally comforting. All right, Adrian. Well, um, I think we have time for maybe about two more. more. All right. So uh, I do believe in God, and I trust Christ with my eternity, but I just can't believe that certain parts of the Bible, such as sexual purity, tithing, one way to be saved, all these things still pertain to us living today. They just don't seem applicable to our modern society. So how would you respond to this person? Yeah, great question. I would say if something is true on Monday, is it also true on Friday? Okay. If something is true in AD 35, would it also be true in AD 2017? Truth by its very nature is exclusive against falsehood. It doesn't change. If something is morally right yesterday, it's morally right today. And I would add that the premise of that question is uh, these weren't uh, difficult issues for us today, but these weren't difficult issues for them back then. Hey, these were difficult issues for people back then too. I mean, there were a multiplicity of religions in the first century world. Uh, The city of Rome and the Roman Empire was every bit as liberal sexually as America is today, probably more so. Prostitution was legal across the board there. 
Um, people have always held tightly to their money. These issues are not new issues. Uh, so to say, per the premise of the question, and I've heard that from many, many people, that these um, were ancient issues, but these are not modern issues anymore, that just is not a, a proper understanding of history. I think the bigger issue behind the question is this. People want to participate in a buffet Christianity. I like this. I don't like that. And the danger there is that you can unintentionally make a God of your own making. You can smooth over the rough parts of Jesus that you don't really like that much. And if you say, I believe in Jesus, but I can't believe he's the only way to God, you're not actually believing in Jesus as he revealed himself. The crucial question is, what do you do with Jesus as he has been revealed? And if you choose to pervert him, to change what he says, to make him into something different than what he really is, even with the rough edges, as your pastor, i got to warn you, you might not even be a Christian. Those are the very hard words of Scripture that we do not have the liberty to take Jesus and say, I'll use you for my eternal salvation, but I don't care for you saying you are the way, the truth, and the life. No, what we need to do is have a backbone of steel and say, Jesus, I receive you as you are. And I may not like or understand all of this, and there's some things that I don't completely understand about my faith, but I submit on the basis of so many other things that I know are absolutely true, and I say, I am not the one in authority, he is. Amen. And I invite you to agree with that. Amen. Well, this has been a great conversation. We're gonna throw one last question out here to end with, and um, I think this is one that we probably have all struggled with at some point in our, our life. And so, why do people have to suffer if God loves them, if we trust him, why does he allow us to feel the most distant during those tough times when we feel like we need his presence yeah. the most? I thought Tim did an excellent job with that sermon a few weeks ago, answered it beautifully. Um, but I, I would say I, I totally empathize with that question. I think we've all asked that question at one time or another. I ask it on a regular basis. I mean, I totally empathize with that question. Whoever, I, we got that question from a number of people. You know, I, I think... Um, Perhaps God allows us to suffer for the same reason that we allow our kids to suffer. I mean, perhaps you think you would save your kids from all suffering if you could, and I would say, no, you wouldn't. Because if you saved your kids from all suffering, they would turn into the most entitled, selfish creatures that you'd ever meet. Suffering is frequently for our good. We allow our kids to fall down and scrape their knees at times because it's out of that that we develop the muscle of perseverance. It's out of that that we develop the muscle of hope. It's out of that that we develop the muscle of character. It's out of that that we learn that the church is for me, the church would surround me. And sometimes we think that God is distant while when in fact he is developing those muscles for us and he's expecting the church to come around us in our time and place of greatest need. And Romans chapter 5 says this exactly, that we go through suffering such that God would develop in us perseverance and character and proven hope because hope does not disappoint. You know, I, 
I shared in the first service, and I'll just share very briefly, that, that you know, I've been a stutterer for my whole life, and uh, that's been a cause of great suffering for me. And I have to use my speech techniques every single time I stand up here in front of you. And I never would have chosen stuttering for my life. And I'm not nearly as good at, stu at stuttering now as I used to be. <laughs> I have developed some good techniques to help me. Um, but from time to time, you'll, you'll hear me stutter when I preach. Last week, I had a pretty good one. As I was talking about sexuality. <laughs> I never would have chosen that. I never would have chosen the rejection that I felt throughout so much of my youth, throughout my early 20s, at the hands of so many listeners when I stutter. And yet I can testify for sure today that God has used it for good. I can say for sure today that God has used it to develop things in me that never would be developed any other way than through the gift of perseverance. And so I think it's, it's God's good character, his kindness. And sometimes we think that God is distant from us in the midst of suffering, when in fact what he would do is strengthen our perseverance muscle and bring the church all around us. And he would invite us right in the middle of our suffering to draw near to God a little bit more each and every day. And 1 Peter 5 gives us this promise. If you draw near to God today, if you're suffering, he will draw near to you. Devote a little bit more time to drawing a little bit nearer to God each and every day, and he promises to draw near to you. Can I close with one Bible verse? Sure. 2 Corinthians 4, no, 16 and 17, I'll give you two. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When it comes to suffering, Paul tells us, let's keep eternity in mind. Suffering will come to an end. Amen. Well, I think that's a great place to stop. And I hope you guys have enjoyed this as much as I have. Thank you for letting me be a part of this. This has been fun. Thank you, Sarah. I am going to go ahead and close our conversation here in prayer. If you guys will go ahead and pray with me. God, I thank you that you are a good God. And as Tim pray, uh, shared, Lord, I just, I pray that you would help us keep an eternal perspective on whatever suffering um, you are allowing in our life, Lord. We, we trust that you are good. God, we thank you that you welcome our questions. And I just pray that the conversation that took place here this morning, it, God, that it not only honors you, but that it brings the hearts of those listening closer to you. God, I pray for those who, stay, who may still be struggling with some of these questions and probably raise some new questions from these answers, Lord. I pray that in the midst of their process, they would know that you are good and that they can love you and that they can trust you. I pray that you would continue to reveal your heart and your truth to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.